Let's be seated. And I invite you again to the Psalter, Psalm 23, and let's read together Psalm 23. A psalm of David, reading in unison together, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Two weeks ago we considered Psalm 23 at length. You remember there in this timeless poem that we see God as shepherd in verses 1 through 4. And then as we come to verses 5 through 6, we encounter God as host. Last Lord's Day, we considered how the New Testament revelation points to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this psalm, epitomizing God as shepherd and God as host. Jesus is, as we noted last week from John 10, the exquisite, the loyal, the faithful, good shepherd who lays down his life for the flock. Then we consider verses 5 and 6 today, turning to the New Testament revelation that points to Jesus as host. This is a theme we could develop in a series of sermons, but today we will limit our consideration to a few select texts and we will not linger long over them as we prepare for the Lord's table today. But it is fitting as we consider the theme of Jesus as divine host, that we consider this theme in the face of the Lord's table as we prepare our hearts to come to it. So Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down His life for His flock. Jesus also relates to His people as hosts welcoming us into His presence, inviting us to feast our souls on the riches of His spiritual bounty. In the ancient world, one's reputation and character, one's contribution to culture and society was tested by how He welcomed and hosted traveling strangers in His home. Long before there was anything like a network of hotels and restaurants as we enjoy in this land, Travelers were often reliant on the good graces of total strangers to bring them in and to care for them as they traveled from place to place. And hosts would ideally then supply their guests willingly, lavishly, with painstaking attention to detail. Who you were was determined by how you hosted the stranger, and the guest. And hosting certainly extended far beyond total strangers. 
In fact, in the ancient context, hosting friends and family in your home was commonly seen as an almost covenantal expression of fellowship, especially when you ate together. When you ate together, communed with each other in this way, it was an expression of fellowship. It was a, there was a connection there between you that was covenantal in nature. We encounter Jesus as host in a most unusual scene in John 6. And here we find Him then in the context of His day, in this image of one who provides comfort in a hostile world, one who extends covenantal friendship and lavish provision. Considering the setting of that day, we find Jesus here in a very unique scene. John chapter 6, if you'll make your way there, we find Jesus hosting 5,000 people. John chapter 6, the event is described beginning at verse 1. John 6 verse 1, after this Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up His eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test Him, for He Himself knew what He would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. We notice here Jesus assuming the role of host. No one would say that Jesus had any obligation to feed the crowds. You don't go, let's say there's a lecture at the University of Minnesota, you go to hear this guest lecture, and before 5,000 people, this individual shares their wisdom and then treats you all to a hamburger afterwards i mean you you would never even think that that would be something that would be possible yet jesus steps forward and assumes the role of host philip is concerned saying 200 denarii worth of bread that's 200 days labor a significant amount of money is not going to be enough for each of them to get a little. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they with so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, 5,000 in number. As was custom, the host seats his guests. And as was custom, the host initiates the passing of the food. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. Lavish provision. Jesus preparing, Jesus seating, Jesus feeding, lavishly providing for these guests who have gathered here to hear Him speak. Verse 12, And when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 
when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountainside, to the mountain by himself. It is not difficult to find commentators who look at this text of Scripture and they say, listen, this is all that's really happening here. I mean, we, we read into it. These are commentators with an anti-supernatural bent and they say, we're reading miracles into this scene. Really, the only thing that's happened here is Jesus has gotten all these people to share their lunch together. And when they put all the food together, lo and behold, there actually is enough food to feed everyone. That's all that's really taking place here. I don't want to belabor this point too much, but people say things like that, and it is sometimes arrests our attention. And we wonder, is that all that's taking place? Is there a genuine miracle that's happened here? I think there's strong arguments in favor of Jesus miraculously creating food. Verse 11, notice, the loaves and the fish Jesus took belong not to the crowd, they belong to whom? To the boy. It's the boy's food contextually that he's talking about, not the crowd's food. Number two, verse seven, Philip believes that 200 days wages will provide a less than satisfying portion of food to some of the people. So supply beyond what they have, 200 denarii, and they won't even all eat. Number three, verse 13, the sizable amount of leftovers points to the lavish provision of Jesus as host, not to the fact that the crowd had packed way more lunch than they thought. In verse 14, they see it as a sign. They see it as a miraculous sign. The long prophesied prophet of Israel has come. And verse 15, are we really to believe that they wanted to make Jesus the king of Israel because he got a bunch of people to share their lunch together? I mean, it's ridiculous if we take it in context and understand what it's saying. Jesus is showing himself to be God. And I wonder with those critics who say he's just getting them to share their lunch if there might not be a soft spot for socialism that drives their interpretation of the text. It's certainly not careful exegesis of what the text is saying. What is the text saying? Serving as host, Jesus miraculously creates food demonstrating that he is God's unique prophet and that he shares God's nature. The next day, as people question Jesus, he ultimately explains the meaning of his feeding the crowd the day before. It's not just about supplying them with food, and it's certainly not about getting them to share like good boys and girls. There's something far more significant that Jesus is teaching here. And he brings that out beginning at verse 25. At least we'll skip to that place. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You don't want to really know what the signs mean. You just want me to make more food. They're impressed by the miracle. 
But Jesus emphasizes the deeper meaning of the miracle. All miracles of Christ point to something else, point to a message. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal Jesus is the source of a kind of food that sustains one's soul for eternity. It's a bold claim. They don't get his point. They do gather that he's talking about their relationship with God, which is why they now say in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? I mean, that doesn't come out of nowhere. They know what he's saying. There's a relationship with God that Jesus provides, and they're essentially saying, tell us how to relate to God. We don't need you in the mix. Well, Jesus says, essentially, put your pencils away. This is going to be very simple. Verse 29, Jesus answered them. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent that you believe in me, that you put your trust in me, relating to God by putting your trust in me. That's what you need to do. In their spiritual blindness, they cannot stomach the idea that belief in Jesus is the righteousness that God requires. So they demand Jesus prove himself to be God's prophet, as if he hadn't done that already. The crowds, verse 14, recognized him to be the prophet, They want to see more fireworks. There's got to be more miracles that come here. Verse 30. So they said to him, "What Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus claims that He can give them food that endures forever, that by believing in Him, they will have right relationship with God. And they say essentially, you can't give us bread any better than the manna that fell from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness. You can't do it. There's no way that you can accomplish any more than what we received under the ministry of Moses. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. That's what it means. Give it to us. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He points to himself as the source of this life, this sustaining life through this living bread that gives life forever. Jesus says, I am that source. We must skip to verse 48. Or he says again, I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that 
one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What? Verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves. It's a strong word in the original text. They were arguing among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Well, how do we read my flesh? My flesh is the bread of life. I think it takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 14, where we read that the word became flesh. There's a direct connection there with this word. The word, Christ, becomes flesh, enters this world on assignment from His Father. Verse one and verse, and, and chapter 1, verse 14, the word becomes flesh. Jesus is then saying that He lays down His life. He gives His flesh to die in order that sinners may have eternal life. Now, why is there a dispute among his hearers? These are not stupid people. They're not thinking that Jesus is saying, come up and take a bite out of me. But they don't know what he means. They're arguing the point among themselves. What is the figurative sense that Jesus has in view? They know he's speaking figuratively, but what does he mean? So they're exasperated, and I think that's the idea of the question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not saying we're coming up to take a bite out of him. What they're saying is we can't figure it out. We don't know what he means by this. So they, in exasperation, just use the same phrase and turn it back, having not solved it. That's why there's debate. What Jesus does is not simply explain, say, listen, Here's what I mean. But he takes their exasperation, their response, and he runs with it. He does this to provoke thought and to expose their confusion because their confusion is rooted in their lack of belief in him. It takes a little work to get through that. But I think that's that's exactly what's happening. He takes their exasperated response. They don't know what he means. What does it mean that you must eat my flesh? He runs with it so as to expose the reason they don't understand is because they're rejecting Him. Which is exactly what God requires of them to believe in Him. So verse 53, He says to them, does He back off on the flesh idea in eating it? No, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Eating Jesus' flesh and blood 
is a figurative way of pointing to belief in, identification with, and communion in Jesus' violent death for the salvation of sinners. Verse 54, you note the phrase here that says, we'll raise him up on the last day. It parallels the very same phrase in verse 40, which says nothing about eating Christ's body. So he's speaking figuratively, saying, I am the source of life. But the way he puts it is offensive to them because they don't want to believe. They don't want to get the point. He invites them to believe in him and to commune with him. So Jesus hosts and feeds 5,000 as a means of demonstrating that he is the bread of life, that he is a host who lavishes upon us his eternal peace. Let's turn to a second scene And that's in Luke 22. Luke 22. Jesus hosts the disciples. Jesus has hosted the 5,000 and now He hosts the 12. Luke 22. We find preparations for another feast. Verse 7, and Jesus again leading these preparations. Verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That is, we're dealing here with the Jewish Passover festival, the annual celebration that commemorates God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Jesus knows that this is the last Passover meal that He will eat. The authorities will soon arrest Him. He will soon hang on a Roman cross. Knowing this, he chooses to spend these last hours with his disciples and initiates this meal. Verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Jesus will not physically prepare the Passover meal. He does not own a home. Nevertheless, he steps forward as the host of this last supper that he will eat with his disciples. Verse 9, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? That is, Jesus, again, notice, he's taken responsibility for the arrangements. They don't know where it's to be located. They're asking him that. He said to them, verse 10, behold, a man, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Men in Israel typically carried water in animal skin containers that they would sling over their backs. Larger containers. Women carried water in earthen jars balanced on their heads. So the teeming crowds of pilgrims who are jammed in the streets of Jerusalem, they might pity the poor sap who has to, the only thing he could do is carry the jar of water on his head, but they're not going to think anything of it. But it's a very unique sign And Jesus is being very careful here not to be detected. They follow the man, they speak the prearranged words to him, and as Jesus has set it up, the preparations are made for this Passover meal. 
Verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, maybe something of a parallel for us Gentiles is just to think of a Thanksgiving meal. But think of it a formal Thanksgiving meal, not the one that some people watch in front of the football game at the television, but, but the people gathered around the table, but add to it a heightened ritualistic, religiously, uh, with religious symbols, bitter herbs reflecting the misery of the Israelite slaves in Egypt, stewed fruit to remind them of the bricks that they made, the mortar used for the bricks that they made to build the cities of Egypt. The lamb, remembering the sacrificial animal whose blood was smeared on the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over. But this meal, that is so heavily oriented toward past deliverance, Jesus insists actually prophesies a future deliverance for God's people. This meal marks the doorpost of a new era of salvation history, which will find its fulfillment in the kingdom of God and which is about to find its center in the death of Christ in Jerusalem within hours. So verse 17, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this. And divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There were four ritual cups imbibed at the Passover. The leader of the meal would take a few moments to make some comments. Then, as was typical, drink from the common cup, which was then passed around the low table at which the guests reclined on their left elbow at the table, they would take this common cup and pass it from person to person. As with the bread, Jesus explains that the cup takes on this new prophetic focus because it now points forward. This is radical in their thinking. They're thinking backward. God delivered us from Egypt. He says now it is going to point as well forward and more significantly it points forward the supper jesus here inaugurates will point forward to god's grand salvation plan centered on jesus as the lamb of god the blood of the lamb on the doorpost in egypt was simply pointing forward to the ultimate lamb of god jesus christ So Jesus stresses the future focus of this memorial meal and now attaches then new symbolism to the bread and the cup. Verse 19, And He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. So for the bread, Jesus does not say, notice, this bread will become My actual body after I die confusion of some to our day no his body was right there in front of them blood coursing through his veins and he doesn't talk about what it's going to become he says this that i'm holding here is my body no one confused the bread in his hand with his actual flesh or the cup with his blood any more than they took jesus literally when he said i am the door 
The bread symbolizes his body, which is given for you. Given for you. What does that mean? It it can only point to Jesus' life laid down as he does as the good shepherd, so as the host he will lay down his life for his people. Which way is Jesus looking? This is my body given for you. He looks forward to the cross, not backward to the exodus. For the cup, there's new symbolism, verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant between God and Israel was mediated by Moses and it was ratified with the ritual sprinkling of sacrificial blood. There was death that ratified the covenant between God and Moses. Through the shedding of an animal's blood, Israel's sin was covered and she was prepared to relate to God, to enter covenant with God. Who can enter covenant with God? Not sinners. But by the death of an animal, God invited the Israelites into relationship with Him. Now Jesus says, holding aloft the cup, He declares, My shed blood will ratify a new covenant between God and His people. This new covenant, this new way of relating to God is in my blood, Jesus insists. Now, in the sense that it's new doesn't mean that it's, as we say, brand new. It's related to the old covenant in the sense that it's relating to the same God who is saving His people. But it is a new covenant in that it is a distinct way through the blood of Jesus that we relate to God. Not through the blood of an animal, But in a matter of hours, Jesus' lifeblood will be shed so that we can enter through Him into relationship with God. The sinless one taking the sin of sinners and dying. So Jesus died, and as He did, a new era of salvation history begins. A new covenant is inaugurated. What we witness here is a stunning transformation of the symbolism of this ancient meal. Now there's some, they would argue this, and they'd be tempted. Maybe some of you are tempted. Say, well, Jesus just rewrote the book. He just did something radically different that's not connected to anything before, and He's just rewriting what the Passover meal really ought to be. Not at all. What Jesus is showing is that this is the end of the Passover meal. This is the fulfillment of it. Everything was pointing this way. The blood of a lamb shed on the, and sprinkled on the doorpost, smeared on the doorposts of the Israelite slaves, that was just pointing forward to the ultimate salvation that God provides. What Jesus is telling us is that there's the inauguration of a new covenant, a new way of relating to God undoubtedly to this point God's people were continuing to offer animal sacrifices there's now a new way that way is through Jesus Christ and his death as the Lamb of God so it's new but it's connected it's new in the sense that it is fulfillment of all that was pointing to this place now the bread of life we eat we commune with Christ as the one who brings us to God.
From now on, then, this meal looks forward to its consummation in the kingdom of God. From now on, this meal is communion with the crucified, risen Savior whose blood atones for our sin. And we remember this as we celebrate, as we observe the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper that's instituted here is really holy ground. It is here that host Jesus provides for His people a unique opportunity to commune with Him as the bread of life. It is here that we, in the right sense of the word, feed on Jesus. Not in the wrong sense that we think this really is His body and blood, but in the right sense that there is a deep and abiding spiritual communion between us and Christ as He brings us to the Father. So we celebrate here that we've been united to His death and resurrection, testifying that He is the bread of life to our souls. It's here that we celebrate our reconciliation to God through Christ and fellowship with Him as the risen, reigning, and returning Savior. This is also a place then where host Jesus enables us to commune with one another in the glorious message of the Gospel, to unite our hearts together here at this table to say, Christ is the bread of life. And so let us come and dine in the presence of our glorious host, Jesus Christ. Let us commune here with our Savior and with the church body He purchased with His blood. And as we do, we should recognize this meal as one of two rites or ordinances, some call them sacraments, of the church. The first ordinance is initiatory. That is, it symbolizes and recognizes our entry into the body of Christ through faith in the saving power of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is a symbol, but baptism, immersion, is a symbol that we have been united by personal faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That is the initiatory ordinance of the church. It is, in a sense, a doorway. Not the doorway of salvation, but a marker that we have come to salvation in Christ. The second ordinance is an ongoing one. It marks our perpetual communion with Christ in His body. We know it as the Lord's Supper. So, with no intention to offend in any way, but to speak the truth, let me say that if you have not placed your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection to rescue you from God's judgment, if you have not come to embrace Him as your Lord and Savior, This is not a meal at which you really can honestly participate. Now I trust as you observe and watch others in the midst of this that there's a hunger that's created. There is no one here because of who they are or any sin that they've committed that's barred from this table because of their sin. But we cannot honestly commune with Jesus Christ if He's not our Lord and Savior. 
if you have not been immersed as a believer, as a demonstration of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, recognized by other believers as they observe, then you have not participated in the initiatory rite of the church, and so should not participate in its ongoing rite. That would be kind of like trying to go to the alumni banquet before you graduated. Nobody wants to cut you out as such, but we've got to get things in order. First, graduation, diploma, and then the alumni banquet. But again, I trust that if you say, I've not been immersed as a believer, I've not been baptized in a biblical way, that you would participate here, watching here, observing here, and that it would create a hunger. That there would be a hunger to commune with Christ in the way that he indicates his people should commune with him. As we eat then, I would say, if you, have not, if you have not embraced Christ as your Lord, if you have not indicated that by believer's baptism, I would ask as the elements are passed that you think very carefully and meditate, asking the question, why am I not ready? to commune at this meal. In that meditation, there may be some of you who say, I don't accept Jesus as God. I don't accept Him as the Savior. I don't want to identify with Him as Lord and coming King. Answer that question in your mind. There's others you may say, I need to get moving. There is a hunger here to commune with God's people and to commune with Christ in this meal. Why am I not ready? Ask yourself that and answer it biblically. But the invitation then to this meal with no desire to cut anyone out unless that, that, um, except that they're not ready in Christ's mind is to invite here those who have been born again by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior knowing that it was His death that took my place and paid the penalty of my sin. It is His resurrection life that I trust. And for those who have participated in the initiatory ordinance of the church, believers' baptism, and are walking in fellowship with the Lord, if you can say, that's where I am, I'm not sinless, but I confess my sin as I come to this meal, and here it is my desire to commune with Christ then come. Come confidently. Come boldly. And let's commune together around this table. Our Father, as we pass this bread, we bless it knowing that You have blessed us in Christ.